0: Hello and welcome podcasters from a damp and suddenly autumnal dorset. Welcome to our banking litigation podcast number 21. Mists and mellow fruitfulness down here have been replaced by mud, mire and myriad midges. Uh, On a more positive note, uh, we're joined uh, by a new face behind uh, the glass today, Annabelle Davis, who's taken over from Alice White uh, and who's made today's show possible. Welcome, Annabelle. Uh, and uh, as ever, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, uh, professional support consultant, Kerry Morgan. Good evening, Kerry.
1: Evening, John.
0: And our guest speaker, um, banking litigation star extraordinaire, Scott Warren. Good evening to you, Scott. Good evening, John. It's very smart, uh, grey wind cheater you're supporting there, Scott. Thank you very much. It's cold at the uh, moment. It is, especially in Dorset. Well, look, first up today um, is one of our classic categories, contractual construction. Kerry, I think you're going to kick off with a quick crash course in the latest of ISDA cases arising out of the Swiss flash crash.
1: Oh, I see what you've done there, John. Very good. Uh, yes, the, the case I've chosen to lead with today is CFH clearing and MLI. Um, and this is one that will be welcomed by financial institutions uh, as it highlights the weight given by the court to clarity and certainty when interpreting the ISDA master agreement. And here this meant rejecting the proposition that the concept of market practice uh, could be incorporated into such contracts.
0: C- could you just give a bit of context, uh, Karen, and take our podcasters back to 2015 when the Swiss flash crash occurred?
1: Yeah, great idea, John. So um the Swiss flash crash refers to the day that the Swiss National Bank depegged the Swiss franc from the euro. In other words, by removing the currency floor with respect to the value of the Swiss franc against the euro. So this caused severe fluctuation exchange market in those currencies.
0: Interesting. Uh, so how exactly does this relate to the reported case you're talking about?
1: Oh yeah, so well John, returning to the facts, the claim was brought by a broker who entered who had entered into FX transactions with the defendant bank. This was documented by a two thousand two Isda Master agreement, which unfortunately for the broker was entered into on the same day as the crash. Oh dear. Yeah, quite. So the fluctuations in the foreign uh, exchange market triggered the automatic liquidation of certain client positions of the broker at prices below the official low set by the e-trading platform for Swiss franc uh, interbank trades, which is called the Electronic Broking Service or EBS. The broker was actually quite fortunate in that it entered into similar trades with other banks and encountered the same problem, but those other banks um, agreed to amend the pricing of trades to at or above the EBS low. But when it came to the defendant bank, although the bank agreed to improve the pricing of its trades, this was to a level that was still below the EBS low.
2: Kerry, so what was the basis of the broker's argument then?
1: Well, it argued that the bank's T's and C's has somehow imported an obligation to comply with market practice and that based on this, the bank should reprice or cancel the transactions in basically in the same way as the other banks. Um, and the broker relied on the following clause in particular, which I'll quote, uh, all transactions are subject to all applicable laws, rules, regulations, howsoever applying and where relevant, the market practice of any exchange market trading venue and or any clearinghouse. The Court of Appeal upheld the High Court's decision to grant summary judgment in favour of the defendant bank. Essentially, the Court emphasised the importance of clarity, certainty and predictability when interpreting the ISDA master agreement. Uh, this was particularly so where the parties could have opted to provide for market disruption in the contract um, under the 1998 FX definitions, but had chosen not to. Ultimately, the court thought that market practice as a concept was too vague and uncertain to be incorporated as a contractual term.
2: Good news for banks then. And I believe we have a blog post on this decision. No, we
1: do indeed. There is a link in the show notes.
0: Terrific. Thank you very much, Kerry. And thank you, Scott. Uh, Now moving on, deep dive into DSARS. Uh, I hope that further entirely unscripted alliteration caught your attention. Scott, over to you. Certainly. The next case we're going to talk about is Lee's
2: and Lloyd's, and it provides useful guidance for financial institutions dealing with DSARs. So, the decision in a nutshell is this. Where a bank was receiving numerous and repetitive DSARs, which were being used by the claimant customer for a collateral purpose, the bank didn't have to comply with
0: those DSARs. Uh, Now, Scott, I'm sure that while we have some data protection experts out there, It might be helpful to talk us through the obligations of controller organisations in respect uh, to a DSAR. John, of
2: course. Uh, DSARs are data subject access requests through which an individual can request information concerning their own data that controller organisations hold. So under the Data Protection Act or DPA or the GDPR, I think everyone knows that one by now, organisations are required to provide an adequate response to such requests. The Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO, which is the UK's privacy regulator, has previously provided guidance on when to comply with DSARS. It's previously stated that they are motive-blind, and therefore that means the collateral purpose of a request shouldn't impact whether or not a controller is required to comply. However, The latest draft guidance from the ICO suggests there is no obligation to comply with DSARS when they are manifestly unfounded. That's very useful. Thank you, Scott. No problem. So turning to the facts of this case, the claimant had entered into various mortgage arrangements with the bank, but had failed to keep up repayments and was attempting to prevent possession proceedings. As part of this, the claimant brought claims in the county court and high court, all of which were held to be without merit. Plus, it sent a large number of DSARs to the bank. The bank responded to all of the DSARs, but the claimant went on to bring a further claim against the bank, saying that it failed to provide data contrary to the DPA and GDPR. The court dismissed the claim on the basis that the bank had provided adequate responses to the DSARs. But I think what's more interesting is the court's secondary finding, which has the potential for wider application. Here the court commented that even if the claimant could show there was a failure by the bank to provide a proper response to one or indeed more of the DSARS, the court had a discretion as to whether or not to make an order. And on the fact of this case, the court would have sided with the bank.
1: Yes, I think it's striking that the court decided to give us obiter commentary on this. Um, Do you want to talk us through the key reasons given by the court?
2: Absolutely, Kerry. So well, the court basically said the DSA's were abusive. Given their number and repetition, their real purpose was to obtain documents as opposed to personal data, and that, the court said, was clear, as was their collateral purpose to assist the claimants to slow or stop the bank's claims for possession. Aside from all of this, the data sought wasn't of any real benefit to the claimants. It was also significant that the possession claims had been the subject of final determinations in the county court from which all avenues of appeal had been exhausted. Taking a step back, this is a really helpful judgment to highlight the robust approach that the court is willing to take where it suspects the tactical deployment of DSARS against institutions. And hopefully, this will make it a little easier for financial institutions in determining when it's appropriate to resist nuisance DSARS. In my experience, this decision is going to be particularly helpful in the context of financial product mis-selling cases. In these cases, DSARs are often used by claimants as a tool to obtain documents from a financial institution in order to build their case alongside uh, the traditional disclosure routes.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Scott. Um, I think it would be interesting to see how this judgment interacts with the ICA's guidance you mentioned at the beginning as well.
2: Entirely agreed. It's unclear at the moment, frankly, whether the conclusion in this case will take precedence over the ICO guidance, but with hope
0: that will be resolved in the not too distant future. Very interesting case, Scott, and very welcome. And we've got a blog post on that decision uh, for our listeners as well. And hopefully that'll give some guidance as to how to deal with numerous and repetitive emails on a Monday morning. Uh, I could really uh, use the help. Anyway, look, our next category for today is securities class actions, another perennial favourite of this show. And I'm going to take a look at two bro- uh, cases broadly falling within this remit. Uh, the first off uh, is a quick one on the Tesco litigation with which many of our podcasters will be familiar. Um, you'll have heard quite a lot about it in our previous episodes, but just to jog your memory... It's a securities class action brought by Tesco's shareholders under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 in relation to false and misleading statements allegedly made by Tesco regarding its commercial income and trading back in 2014.
1: Oh, well, John, I'm sure our audience will be very sad to hear that that case has now settled, although... Um, I have seen news that some new claims have been brought uh, against Tesco's arising out of the same fact, so who knows?
0: Yes, you're right, Kerry. Hopefully one day we'll have a final judgment on Section 90 or Section 90A of FISMA. But until then, the Tesco claim has left us with a parting gift in the form of its pre-trial review hearing, in which some important points were flagged. This particular judgment is is actually quite interesting, regardless of the subsequent settlement, because it brings into focus a key case management decision for securities class actions, Uh, in particular whether the trial will be split, and if so, uh, what the precise split of issues uh, to be determined should be. The judgment highlights how vital uh, this decision can be and how easily these split trials can go wrong. John, do I recall that we recently published a blog post looking into those tactical issues? That's absolutely right, Scott. Uh, Once again, I'll direct all the podcasters over to our banking litigation blog as as always, there's a link in our show notes.
1: And John, you said you've got a second case in the securities class action bucket to walk us through.
0: Okay, that, That's right. Sorry. Uh, yes, this is the recent case of Jala and Shell. Uh, and while it's not a decision in the financial services context, it has read across value for class actions more generally because it emphasises the firm limits of the representative procedure under CPR 19.6. Okay, before getting into the weeds on this one, John, can you give us a quick recap on the deployment of the representative action procedure? Yes, I I certainly can, Scott. Thank you. Uh, So representative actions are a pretty powerful tool in the class action armoury because they effectively act as an opt-out class action regime. And I say that because the regime allows a representative claimant to bring proceedings on behalf of a broad body of claimants who need not be joined or even identified. The critical threshold for bringing a representative action is to be able to show that the claimants all have the same interest. And for this, it's not sufficient to point some common issues of fact or law, like a duty or breach of the duty. It's a much higher bar than that. And in this particular case, the high court struck out the representative element of the claim precisely because the claimant had failed to meet this threshold, same interest criterion, uh, with the court re-emphasizing the strip test, Uh, to to use the representative action vehicle.
1: So presumably the claimant in this case could make use of alternative group procedures, given that they were shut out of the representative action route.
0: Yes, that's absolutely right, Keg, uh, group litigation orders and and that sort of thing. Uh, But of course, the disadvantage of this particular case uh, decision for claimants and funders is that GLOs, in contrast, are an opt-in vehicle, And this means that you need to find and identify all of the claimants in the class, uh, a sort of book-building process, which is exactly what happened in the Tesco uh, litigation that I just referred to.
2: So this sounds like a good news decision from the perspective of financial
0: institutions. Yes, it will be reassuring. um, For instance, in the context of securities class actions or mis-selling claims for financial products, uh, such claims I think will be unlikely uh, to be capable of being brought as a representative action given that they raise individual questions of reliance, causations, loss, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth noting that the claimants have requested permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal on this point. Um, so it will be interesting to see the view that the Appellate Court takes.
0: As ever, absolutely right uh, on that, Kerry. Uh, well, that certainly brings uh, me uh, to the end of my section. I think, Kerry, you're going to do a bit more uh, for us, deeping a deep dive into procedure?
1: Uh, Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, Just a very quick one on procedure from me on the recent case of Wired Orthodontics and others, an HMRC. It contains some useful guidance as to what might constitute inappropriate interference by an instructing solicitor with the independent evidence of an expert witness. The particular point highlighted here is the risk for solicitors in suggesting any amendment to the draft joint statement, which is prepared following a meeting of experts. Amendments really must only be suggested in exceptional circumstances where there are serious concerns that the court may misunderstand or be misled by the terms of the joint statement.
0: Yeah, I'd look at this when it came out, Kerry, and if memory serves me correctly, um, it was an in-house Yeah uh, exactly, yeah, well
1: remember John. Um, um, it's a helpful reminder that this is not just an issue for outside counsel. I won't go into all the detail here, it's not the best forum, but if you're finalising a joint expert report now or in the near future I would recommend that you have a read of the judgment. Agreed,
0: very important reading. Uh, thank you uh, Kerry for that update. Um, so today we have a bonus round, we're going to round off the podcast with a feature on breaking news. Uh, first <laughs> up, Sorry I'm missing a couple of strings podcasters. Uh, First up, we have um, some good news for policyholders um, affected by the COVID-related business interruption losses. Uh, And as many of you will be uh, aware by now, on the 15th of September, the High Court handed down judgment in the FCA and Arch and others. Um, HSF, uh, this firm, was representing the FCA in the case, uh, and the FCA was advancing the claim for the policyholders. Um, following extremely expedited proceedings, uh, the judgment brings a highly anticipated guidance on the proper operation of cover under certain non-damage business interruption uh, insurance extensions. Uh, the court found in favour of the FCA on the majority of the key issues. So many congratulations to our uh, insurance uh, litigation colleagues um, from HSF. If you would like to read more, then I suggest you head over to our insurance blog, which, as I'm sure you've all caught on to by now, is also linked to in the show notes. Now over to you, Scott, for breaking story number two.
2: I fear my story is less dramatic, uh, but I will do my best. So there was an important day in mid-September for dispute resolution users around the globe. On the 12th of the month, the Singapore Convention on Mediated Settlement Agreements came into force. The convention aims to establish a global enforcement regime for settlement agreements resulting from mediation of international commercial disputes. A key feature of the convention that has not really been widely appreciated is that it will apply to mediations conducted anywhere in the world, not just within jurisdictions that have ratified it. So... Even though it has not yet been signed by the UK or EU, watch this space and head to our litigation blog post if you would like more information. There is, as always, a link in the show notes. And I will hand over to Kerry for the final breaking news item.
1: Well, I'm afraid I have somewhat fraudulently shoehorned my update into this section. Um, My announcement relates to our recent rather excellent, I must say, HSF webinar on recent trends in dispute resolution choices for banks and financial institutions. Apologies for the awful segue. But anyway, the recording is now available for clients and contacts. It was very much tailored with the in-house lawyer um, at Banks in mind. So if you missed it and you're interested, then please do take a look, uh, which is in the show notes as always.
0: Thank you very much, Kerry. Well, look, um, there we are, podcasters, Misty and Mellow. the banking world is not. uh, But thank you all for tuning in as as ever. Uh, Thank you to Annabelle behind the glass making all of this happen today. Thank you to our guest speaker, uh, Scott, and most importantly to my co-host, Kerry, uh, for co-hosting what um, I hope you'll agree was a very helpful uh, banking litigation podcast. So until next month, thank you very much and goodbye from us.